Father, once again we come to the time when we reflect purposefully and in many different uh, dimensions on your word. And we recognize that this is more than just letters on a page. We recognize that these are your words intended to transform and renew and challenge us. And Lord, as we put ourselves in the place of those who have gone before us and see what you did in the past, help us to see what you will do in the present and in the future. Give us wisdom and insight and ears to hear, hearts to feel, hands to do what you call us to do. We pray this in your precious and holy name. Amen. I invite you this morning to turn to the book of Esther. We, we've been working our way through um, probably one of the challenge, most challenging books of the Bible. I started, I started to survey pastors that I knew. Um, if anybody had been insane enough to study the book of Esther on Sunday mornings and discovered that this was probably a bad idea. Um, it is a difficult it is a difficult book to study um, to go through and to to preach through. Um, we've got a couple weeks uh, left this week and next week, and then we're going to get into a, a series uh, called "Glad You Asked." And I encourage you if you've got a question or a, uh, a topic that you'd like to be discussed as part of that series, just jot it on the the uh, envelope that's in the seat seat back in front of you. Throw it in the offering box, um, and it'll get to me, and we'll include that. I've got about half of that scheduled right now. Um, but uh, I want to I want to just briefly set up what's going on here. If you've you've missed part of this, the book of Esther is about a, a young woman named Hadassah. Um, that's her Hebrew name. Um, her her Babylonian or Persian name is Esther, and uh, she lived in Shusha, the citadel, which is one of the the four capitals of the ancient Persian Empire. Now, the Persian Empire existed uh, in the 6th century B.C. through the 4th century. So it exists basically from uh, the time of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar um, in, the, in the 7th and 6th century B.C. until the time of Alexander the Great in the 4th century. Um, and it was always ruled by a family called the Achaemenids. Um, and they were always, uh, they, they tended to have names like Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes, and those are the Greek versions of pretty much unpronounceable Persian names. Um, and they, they dominated the ancient Near East for about 200 years. It was a very powerful empire. Um, and the Jews had been captured by the Babylonians around the year 600 BC, um, and they had been scattered throughout the Babylonian empire um, and and then when the Persians defeated the Babylonians, the Jews scattered even further. Some went back to their homeland, what is today Israel. Uh, some settled in the northern regions of it, what is today Syria and Lebanon. Some people, actually the largest Jew, Jewish population um, in, in the world for much of history was actually in what is today Iraq, what was ancient Babylon. But there were also many who moved into Persia. Now, Persia is the modern state of Iran. Um, Iran is the word that the Persians used for themselves. They called them the Iran. Um, they are the people of Iran. Um, and, in, and actually, 
Persia was is a name that the Greeks gave to them. They they called it Pars, which is just a, a region of Iran. Um, and so uh, this 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 Jewish population in Iran was mostly centered in these capitals: uh, Shusha, Pasargade, um, Persopolis, uh, and Ekbatana. I know you all really care about those names, um, but if I don't repeat them, I forget them. Um, and and they they uh, they were settled mostly in the capitals, and they were very integrated into the administration. In the Book of Esther, uh, Esther, this Jewish girl, uh, probably a teenager, uh, probably no older than 16 or 17 years old, is elevated to be the queen of the Persians um, by the king that in uh, Esther is called Ahasuerus. Uh, we know that this is the king Xerxes. I won't bore you again with the linguistics of that. Uh, she has a cousin, an older cousin, Mordecai, um, who has ha- raised her and prepared her for this job, and now she stepped into it. And there's a, a guy by the name of Haman, uh, who, because he's angry with Mordecai, uh, has got convinced and cajoled the king into ordering a pogrom, a holocaust, to wipe out the Jews at the end of the year. And so Mordecai goes to Esther, he, he actually dresses in sackcloth, he, he publicly mourns this situation. Esther uh, asks what's going on, she sends emissaries and he sends and tells her all the information, we talked about that last week. She says, give me some time to pray and fast and then I'll go before the king. Because the, the king of the Persians, um, and their title is Shah, all right? so if you're old enough to remember the Shah of Iran... Um, before the Ayatollah Khomeini and the revolution in 1979. Um, And I'm not actually old enough to remember that, but I'm a history guy, so I know about it. Um, But um, Shah is the title, it's the Persian word for king. And she she knows that the Shah, um, he has the power of life and death over anyone who appears in his presence. Um, He has a, a, a golden scepter. And, and this golden scepter actually appears um, in uh, many of the uh, Persian um, wall motifs and reliefs and, and depictions um, in his right hand. And that scepter is the power of life and death. If he withholds the scepter from you, um, he has guards ready to lob off your head or worse, impale you, um, which is an extremely violent way to die. Uh, Persians love to invent terrible ways to make people die. I won't even get into the details. Needless to say, they invented crucifixion. That's all you need to know. Romans perfected it, but the Persians invented it. Um, and uh, and they uh, so he has the power of life and death, and and the power of some serious serious torture. If you catch me after service and ask me about what the two boats are, I will tell you the story. But I won't do it here in the sermon. Don't Google it. Just wait. Um, but anyway, uh, so now she is going to go before the king, and we pick up in Esther chapter 5. Esther chapter 5 and verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. Literally, she clothed herself with royalty and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was seated on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. 
Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter, and the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is this. If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant you my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself, went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zoresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the kings. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows, or literally an impaling pole, 50 cubits high, that's about 75 feet, be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. And the idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. Now, if you remember, I mentioned to you uh, that uh, weeks ago that Esther uses the genre of comedy. Uh, Esther, the book of Esther is going to rely heavily upon irony, and we're getting into the, the meat of the, of the story here. Um, at the beginning of the book of Esther, uh, uh, the king, Hashuerus, had a queen who refused to come to a feast. Now, Esther is the queen inviting the king to a feast and inviting Haman and she's showing favor, and she's, she's allowing herself to be uh, a part of the glory of the king. And, and, and everything about what she's doing is proper and good and fitting. And so the king is overjoyed. I mentioned also a few weeks ago, Esther is a remarkable woman. Um, she's intelligent. She's beautiful. She knows what's going on. She's careful in, in her decisions. She doesn't rush into things. Um, she is, she's, she's very carefully planned out this idea. And I want to talk about what her plan is, first and foremost, so that you understand. So in the face of Haman's um, kind of manipulative way of dealing with things and kind of playing games and, and not telling the king who he wants to have wiped out, and, and I can't get into all the details of that. We talked about it over the weeks. In the face of that... Esther wants to communicate to the king her loyalty, her respect for her husband. Um, now, you say, how does throwing a party um, represent loyalty? Uh, well, remember, the previous queen refused to appear before the king. Now, she had some valid reasons, um, but she was very, very removed from his power, his authority, his glory, 
Esther is taking an extra step to communicate to him that she wants him to recognize how loyal she is. And when he asks her, you, you tell me what you want. You tell me what you want and I will give you anything up to half my kingdom. I will give you anything. It's a test of loyalty. If you were with us weeks ago, you know that, that there were a number of young candidates for this role of queen who came before Esther. And every single one of them was allowed to bring whatever she wanted into that, that audience with the king. And Esther was very smart, very wise, and in, in only listening to what um, what the advisors, the eunuchs who took care of them, told her to bring. She didn't. She didn't bring anything extra. She doesn't demand a price. She's not there to negotiate. She's not trying to acquire everything she can by all means that she can. Instead, Esther she communicates her loyalty to her husband. Why does she do that? So that he will listen when she actually presents the situation. She doesn't jump on the opportunity to acquire something right away. She takes her time. She's methodical. She's thinking her way through this. So much of of our our thinking in our modern society is about the, the gratification of the moment, the thing that I can have right now. Um, the ability to meet my, my, whatever it is, my expectations right now. We don't think about how deep and how, how long it takes to build something of substance. But Esther is taking her time. So Haman then comes out of this feast and he just thinks he has arrived. I mean, this guy. This guy. So the queen throws a feast says, bring Haman, bring him quickly. So Haman, shuffling through, I'm so excited, I'm going to go have this feast with the queen. And he goes and has this feast with the queen, and, and it's so cool. And then he comes home, and as he's coming home, now, it, it, I, I, I meant to put together an image, I forgot to do it, I'll post it on the website, of the, the, the palace um, in Shusha, the citadel. We actually, we have the footprint of this palace, it's actually been excavated. Um, and the inner court that it's talking, what's called the Apadana, that's a, it's actually a Persian word, it means a receiving place. And, and so um, the king was sitting there, Esther comes and appears to him, they get to go into basically probably one of the courtyards, there's, there's three or four courtyards in the palace, to have this big feast. And then Haman would have had to exit to the east and he would have walked across a brick causeway to what was called Darius's gates, or the king's gates. That's where Mordecai is. And as he's walking along, he's like, oh, this is great, this is awesome, the queen has called me in, and, so, and then he sees Mordecai, and he's just like, oh, yeah, that guy. Like, like I mean, how, how topsy-turvy do you have to be? I'm having a great day, everything is fantastic. Oh, that guy, I hate that guy, he's so horrible. I mean, Haman is basically a middle school girl. Like, like, I mean, his emotions are just turning on, on a dime, right? Like, he, he is just all over the place. From the movies, not in real life. I know all of your middle school daughters never did that. Um, mine never, ever did that. Um, so, uh, that was sarcasm. Uh, anyway, the, the, uh, He's walking, he sees Mordecai, and he's, so he, he's just so upset by seeing Mordecai, and he wants to, oh, I'm going to punch him. But then he's like, no, 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 I'm, instead what I'm going to do, I'm going to get everybody together, I'm going to tell everybody how wonderful it is, he gets his wife, he gets his friends together. So he just came from a feast. 
So now he gets together a party at night. He's going to have dinner with his buddies. He's going to, hey, listen, I want to tell you about all this stuff. Now, I love the fact that he gathers his wife, and then he starts talking about his sons. And she's like, I know how many sons you've had. I like, like. I think she's got that down, all right? But um, he, he goes on and on and on about all this stuff, and then his wife says to him, he says, well, well why don't you, you're in such good position, right? You, everything's going so great for you. Why don't, when you go to that, that feast tomorrow with the queen, why don't you, you, you know, go ahead and erect these 75-foot-tall poles that you're going to impale Mordecai on, and then, and then you go, and when you go to that feast tomorrow, you ask the king if you can impale Mordecai on that. You know, because I mean, that's a normal dinnertime request. You know, can I, can I impale someone? Um, and, um, and so, and, and he, he thinks it's a great idea. He wrecks the, the poles. He's going to get ready. And I, I mean, this is, this is one of those moments where you read in this, you're like, okay, so is everybody else around his house? Because this is at nighttime. All right? He goes, you know what would be great tonight? Um, I'm going to... I'm going to have my servants erect poles in front of my house. That won't disturb the neighbors at all. And, and then I'm going to go back to the king and I'm going to ask. And what, what seems to be happening, and, I, and I'll mention this along the way, this is all happening at night. Okay? So he's got this idea. Oh, this is great. And he has the gallows made. And in chapter 6, on that night, the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they read them before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtana and Teresh. These are two guys that had plotted against the king in earlier chapters um, and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the young men who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. And the king said, who is in the court? Now, this is where the irony really starts to kick in. Haman, who hates Mordecai, has had gallows. He's had these poles 75 feet tall erected in front of his house to impale Mordecai. And in the middle of the night, he's so excited about the possibility of being able to execute Mordecai for being a good guy that Haman goes to the court and he seems to be sitting in the court in the middle of the night so that he's the first person to be able to petition the king first thing in the morning. He is as excited as a nerd at the release of a new Lord of the Rings movie. He wants to be there. He is excited as somebody waiting in line for a Taylor Swift tickets. He is excited. And the king says, well, what did we do for Mordecai? Because one of the things that the Persian kings do is they honor people who are loyal to them. He says, what did we do for Mordecai? And his servants look through the books and they go, well, we didn't do anything for him. He says, who's in the court? They said, well, Haman's in the court. He's, I don't know why he's there, but he's there. He's got a sleeping bag and a chair and some Doritos. And he's, he's waiting for some reason. Um, and he's ready to get, and, and in, verse, in verse 5, the king's young men told him, Haman is there standing in the court. The king said, let him come in. So Haman comes in and the king says to him, I won't read the whole thing. The king says to him, what would you do to bring glory and distinction upon someone who, visit, who had done great service for the king. And Haman is so narcissistic that he immediately assumes that the king is talking about him. He goes, oh, right. Well, this is what I would do. Now, watch the irony. When the king asks Esther... I would give you anything to half the kingdom. What does she say? She says, just come to the feast again tomorrow. 
She's smart. She's thinking about the big picture. She's looking at the whole situation. She's going to try to save the entire Jewish people from a a holocaust. When the king says to Haman, how would you honor someone? He immediately thinks about him, and he just says, oh, this is what I would do. And I won't get into he says, but you get a horse, and you put your crown on that horse, and then you get all of your clothes, and you put your clothes on that horse, and then you put a guy on top of those clothes, and then you have your highest, most distinguished servant lead that horse that's already wearing your crown and all your clothes around the town telling everybody how wonderful that guy is. Haman doesn't have any kind of you know, expectations of how great he is himself, does he? It's like, this is, what you, this is what I would just, I would confuse people as to whether you were king or not. And the king goes, oh, that's a great idea. He says, go get Haman, go get Mordecai. He says, uh, in verse 10, the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and the horse as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. You get that moment with Haman. He's like, oh. Now he has come to the court to ask to be able to impale this man. And instead, he gets to lead him around on the king's horse, all around town, declaring how wonderful Mordecai is. Haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed Mordecai. Now, Mordecai... I mentioned before, Mordecai suspected, I think Mordecai suspected Haman of being a part of the plot to kill the king. So Mordecai doesn't trust Haman. Haman doesn't trust Mordecai. Can you imagine that conversation? Haman comes to Mordecai, Mordecai, what are you doing here, Haman? Haman, uh, come on, I got to dress you in robes and ride you around on a horse and tell everybody how great you are. And I mean, honestly, if I'm Mordecai, I'm like, really? (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So they go around. And then in verse 12, then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house mourning and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all the friends and everything that had happened to him. And his wise men, or his magi, um, and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Now, I don't know how they missed that detail before. Um, But they say to him, wait a second, Mordecai is a a Jew. Oh, he's horrible, he's terrible. They seem to know that the Jews have a special kind of thing. They may not understand what's going on. Um, and, and it's very, very possible, and I don't want to get into too much speculation here, but it's very possible the reason they have this feeling is because of people like Daniel. If you read the book of Daniel, Daniel is an elevated, um, uh, among other things, he's an interpreter of dreams, he's a, uh, an advisor to kings, um, he, he, he at one point was very involved in the Persian takeover of Babylon, um, and, and if there is this situation where um, they are very concerned about this situation, he basically says, uh, Haman, if Mordecai, you, you're in trouble, man. You messed with the wrong person. And while they were yet talking, verse 14, here goes some more irony. While they were yet talking, so, okay, just remember what Haman's day has looked like so far. 
it started great. He was at the court, king working with the king. His plan is going according to measure. Then he gets invited to a feast at the queen's house. He goes home, tells everybody how wonderful it is. He's erected some gallows out front of his house. He goes back to the court thinking he's going to find, he's going to get Mordecai and be able to impale him. Instead, he had to lead Mordecai around the city, declaring Mordecai how great. Now he just got home. He's tired. He's exhausted. His plans are falling apart. He collapses on the couch and then a bunch of eunuchs show up and they say, Haman, Haman, Haman. Verse 14, uh, Haman, we got to bring you to the feast that Esther has prepared. So the king and Haman went into the feast. This is the second feast with Queen Esther. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Now you just picture Haman sitting there. Just want to go to sleep. I'm exhausted. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. She used three synonyms in case it was unclear. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent For our affliction is not compared with the loss to the king. In other words, she says, look, if it had been that the Jews were to be enslaved, we've been there. We've done that. We've been been slaves in Egypt. We've been exiles in Babylon. We can handle that. And we we would take it for you. Man, she's talking about her loyalty. Then the king Ahasuerus said to Esther, "Um, who is he? Where is he who has dared to do this? All right? Now, I want you to remember something all the way back. The king does not know that Esther is a Jew. She's never told anyone this. So it's been, it's been kept secret. So guess who else doesn't know that Esther is a Jew? Haman. Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And in verse 8, Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You get one of those moments? It's like, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman's sitting there and he goes, Hey, wait! The king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking, spills the wine, stands up, goes out into the palace garden. Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw the harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. This guy's day has gone to pot. He tries to climb up on the couch to beg Esther for his life, and as he does, the king comes back in the door, and all he sees is another man climbing on his wife's bed. And if there was any clemency left in his heart for Haman, it evaporated. He 
king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as he says that, I picture this image because I was one of those nerds standing in line for Lord of the Rings movies. You know that moment when Gandalf starts to get bigger as he's talking to Frodo about the ring? I picture the king getting starting to loom pretty large. Uh, by the way, Artaxerxes was well known for his ability to kill men with his bare hands. This is not some wimpy king standing in front of him. Will you even insult the queen in my presence? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. That's a great turn of phrase. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, uh, just so you know, there are gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king. And they are standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the wrath of the king abated. Now, we could get a lot of application out of this. One of them is if you're going to plot against people, make sure you know who they're connected to. But that's not a really a Bible message I want to get into. There were things that Esther could control in this situation. She could control herself. She could control the, situa- the, the, the feast. She could control what she could say. She could not control the king's sleeplessness. Now, by the way, in Persian literature, it's not uncommon. We see this again in Daniel as well. But in, in the writings of the Persians and the classical Greeks that write about the Persians, it is often the fact that the Persian kings, when they couldn't sleep, they took that as a sign from their God that something was awry in their kingdom. So he already knows there's something going on. But... but Esther could not have controlled what Haman did. She could not have controlled Haman's ego and his narcissism. She could not have controlled his hatred for Mordecai as a person. She could not have controlled the words of, of Haman's uh, magi and his wife telling him to construct that, that the, the poles. She couldn't have controlled all that. She could only control what she could control. Haman is basically hoisted by his own petard. He falls into his own trap. That's the irony of the narrative, the way that it's written, that exactly what Haman and purposes for the people he hates god although he's never used in the text uses all of that hatred to bring haman ultimately to his own demise but i want to actually i don't want to actually look at that today i want to instead look at something that's kind of happening under the text yes the king gets upset because Esther is a Jew and this order would mean that Esther would be killed. But the king could have protected her. And yes, the king, the the final straw that breaks the camel's back is that the king comes in the room and sees Haman climbing up on Esther's couch begging her for his life, but that's not what he sees. But there's something else going on here that I think is important. There's a reason that Haman never told the king which group of people he was going to have killed. And and there's a reason why Mordecai was careful to tell Esther not to reveal that she was a Jew. Um, because I, I think that, you know, and there's a lot going on here, but I think there's, there's a tendency uh, among us to expect special treatment because of who we are. We like to advertise it. Um, we like to we like to throw it in people's faces if we've we've got 
accomplishments that we can kind of brag on or if we're special. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the, the town that uh, my parents are from, um, Easton, Pennsylvania, my, my, uh, my, my, my great uncle, I, I had, I've told some of you this, my, I had one great uncle who was the chief of police. Um, I had another great uncle who was a contractor for the families. Um, I had a third great uncle who was the county medical examiner. Um, and people say, was that a conflict? Not really. Um, so our name, the DeVitro name, was a protection. My dad, I mean, in the 60s, late 60s, early 70s, my dad was a drug-addled hippie. I mean, he would tell you that himself. Um, he would get pulled over driving either really, really fast or really, really slow. Those of you that lived through the 60s and 70s understand. And he would take out his driver's license and they would say, they would look at it and they would go, DeVitro. Nick DeVitro? Oh yeah, that's my uncle. Move along, son. <laughs> there was a certain esteem. There was a, now there was a price to be paid for that. My father is five foot six. You guys have met him. Um, my uncle, my great uncle Nick, um, and his brothers were all six foot something. They were all great football players, offensive linemen, all those things. My dad was five foot six, 150 pounds, pacifist. Right? He had to play football, wrecked his body, trying to be a DeVitro. Right? Um, but, the, but there was a certain esteem to that name, and any time you wanted to evoke that name, you just evoked it, and everybody in town knew it. And we all know people like that. They just evoke whatever the thing is that's going to get them privilege. But the Jews weren't operating along that way. In fact, the Jews integrated themselves into society so well that we, for the most part, for hundreds of years, couldn't figure out who were the Jews in this society. Because like Esther, Esther and Mordecai, they took uh, names of the society that they lived in, and they worked quietly, and they did their jobs, and they helped the kingdom succeed. They added beauty and strength to the kingdom they were a part of. They were vital. They were wanted. But they weren't advertising. They weren't looking for special treatment. And when a threat came down the road, and Haman was going to wipe them out, he was very careful not to tell the king about that because he was going to destroy his own kingdom by wiping out the Jews. Haman was basically setting up the king to do something that would have toppled his kingdom. A pogrom on the Jews would have been a disaster in Persia. We now know that they made up almost the entirety of the supporting bureaucracy of the Persian Empire. Uh, they were there because, again, we mentioned this before, but because of Jews' belief in the, in the scriptures, Jews had almost 100% literacy in a world where literacy was very rare. They, they were in the same situation in the Roman Empire. A few hundred years later. Um, I mentioned they added beauty and strength. Many of the artisan class of the Persians, the people who put together the monuments, probably the architects that were involved in the construction of the palaces, were probably Jews. Had the king acted on Haman's plan, the kingdom would have crashed. 
And then I look at ourselves, the, the church, and I look particularly in the last few years where Christianity, Christians, the, the, the religious right in America has felt it necessary to be abrasive and caustic in situations and demanded special privileges. Now, some of the things I'm about to say are going to annoy and upset you, and I apologize for that. But let me ask you a question. Let me just throw one out. For a long time, prayer has not been allowed in the public schools. We have not had the teachers leading the children in prayer. And that's what we mean by that, prayer in the public schools. We talk about all of that thing. Um, and yes, children, are, not, children are, are discouraged from expressing their religious beliefs in the public schools. And I think that that's wrong. I think that they should be able to pray if they choose to pray, gather if they choose to gather. That, that's part of the freedom of religion. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you really want your public school teachers leading your children in prayer? I happen to know for a fact a number of my daughter's teachers in public school, I did not want them leading my daughter in prayer. They were members of religions I want nothing to do with. I want my daughter to be able to pray. But I'm not going to scream and yell that I want the teachers to lead a Christian prayer in a Sunday on a, in a public school. A Christian school, sure. We walk around and we say, we want people that represent our values in all of our positions. And when we don't get it, and I know I'm about to upset people and I apologize for this. Well, when we don't get it, we scream and yell about corruption and deceit in the elections because we're shocked and surprised that the majority of a secular society votes themselves privileged no matter what the person is that they elect. And Christianity gets all bound up and churches want to have political rallies and we want to get all this stuff. And the reality is, the reason this happens is because we have removed ourselves from society we have stopped giving the society beauty and structure. We have stopped being a silent voice for glory. And we wonder why the world worships its own desires. And we scream and we yell and we moan and complain. But we're no longer contributing to society. We, we contribute to our own agendas and our own plans. And we dump all of our energy into that. A friend of mine one time said to me, he said, why is it? That pastors don't, are not revered and honored and respected the same as town counselors and managers and things. He says, why, why aren't we a part of society? Why aren't we invited into this? Why aren't we a voice that adds beauty, glory, scholarship, compassion to our society? We live in a society that screams and, 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 and moans. They want social programs. They want justice. Here's one that I, gets me all the time. People are always getting on my case because as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, I believe that every conceived life should have the right of self-determination. I believe that every fertilized egg and every womb in America should be allowed to live to maturity. I really believe that. And people say, well, does that make you pro-life? I'm like, 
sure, you can use that term if you want. I like to actually use the term pro-choice, as in it's not your choice, it's the baby's. But I believe very strongly about that. I, 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 I believe that that should be there. But then when somebody says, well, if you believe that every child should be allowed to be born, why aren't you for social programs that are going to provide meals and, and lunches at school and, and a college education, and the list keeps going on, internet support, internet access, and all that, you should also be supporting these. And, I, and this is my personal take on this. You can take it or leave it. But the government's job is not to provide those things, but somebody should be. Why aren't the Christians? Why aren't we meeting those needs? Why aren't we the ones that are at the forefront of compassion in our society so that we don't have to ask the government to do that? Why aren't we the ones who are bringing beauty into the world? Why aren't we the ones who are, who are transforming society from the inside without having to have control of the government? Because if we were the king would think twice before wiping us out. But as long as all the world sees from us is that we live in our little Christian world and do our little Christian thing. So let me ask you a question. And I'll leave you with this now that I've upset half of you, confused the other half. If we were wiped out, would our society even notice? Would our culture care if the voice of Christ was silenced? They should. You say, oh, well, I get ridiculed for my faith all the time. Do the people that ridicule you know that you love them? Tangibly, physically, love them? Do they see you as the first person acting in compassion, the first person speaking with love and charity into a difficult situation. You say the world's got all this agenda about tolerance and and nonsense and I can't support that. That's fine. I don't support it either. But are those people calling for tolerance? Are they calling for tolerance because you are not the tolerant ones? Because you're not willing to to be uncomfortable a little bit, to show love to people. Now, love doesn't mean ignoring the truth. Don't come out of here saying, Eric said we shouldn't address sin. That is not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we should influence society without having to scream and be shrill. And to be honest, at times, support political situations that we don't agree with. We, the church, we, the believers, we should be adding something to society that society would miss if we were gone. Do we? Do we? That's something to think about. It's something to be angry with me about. That's okay, I can take it. It's something to think about. It's something to process. How do we contribute to society, to society beauty and scholarship and wisdom and truth without compromising our faith and our mission? 
Join me in a word of prayer. Father, you're the only one that can transform us, change us, renew us. And we, the church, we have enjoyed a position of privilege in our society for a long time. And now we live in a world where our voice is often silenced, challenged, condemned, attacked. And the temptation for us is to withdraw and to hide or to get angry and scream. Lord, help us to be present, to love, to speak truth, to contribute something that transforms society so much that even if they don't like us, they want us. Lord, we know that ultimately all protection comes from your Holy Spirit. We can't build a kingdom for ourselves. But Lord, help us to be the kingdom within this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. My brothers and sisters, go and be the church of Jesus Christ.